So has anyone ever asked you a hypothetical question? Maybe I just did. <laughs> no, I didn't. Hypothetical question is one of those questions that you're just asking to gauge some interest. It doesn't have any bearing on the immediate situation. Before I got married, I bought this book of hypothetical premarital questions for my wife and I to go through. Mostly it was a bunch of what-if questions. I think one of the questions in the book was something like, what if you and your spouse are going out to dinner and your spouse is running late and they tell you to go ahead and order them an appetizer? And the waiter comes over and says that the only two appetizers they have is broccoli coleslaw or fried pork belly. Which one do you order for your spouse? You know, hypothetical question, hypothetically speaking. Now, really, that's not much of a hypothetical question, right? I mean, if holy matrimony is on the line, that one's kind of a deal breaker. You need to get the pork belly right. But we've had some hypothetical questions in life, right? I found a few more on the old worldwide interweb that go like this. What do you do when you see an endangered animal eating an endangered plant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if you were offered $35,000 to go three months without washing your hair or brushing your teeth or using deodorant, but you couldn't tell anyone why you were doing that until the end of the three months? What would you do? Don't wash your hair, don't brush your teeth, don't use deodorant. No offense, that sounds like the summer after high school for a lot of people, right? Okay? Here's one more. thought it was kind of good. Imagine that a magical whale just turns you into a kitchen appliance. Do you still like the color orange? My answer would be yes. Um, incidentally, that question comes from a guy who labels himself this, Leon, the master of terrible jokes. So there you go. At least he knows how to call himself. But what if it wasn't a hypothetical question? What if the question is not just something that you're just gauging interest what if it's the kind of hypothetical question that moves you toward understanding there is something, an immediate need bearing on your immediate situation? What if it's a hypothetical question that moves you to see there is an immediate bearing on your soul? Then it's not much of a hypothetical question anymore, is it? Listen to Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 3. So he told them this parable. Jesus has been speaking to a huge crowd of people. In that crowd, there are some people in the crowd that are, are hated and despised by many people in town. And if not hated and despised, they're, they're abused by many people in town. And some of those people were in this crowd. What kind of people were they? Well, they were criminals. Drug dealers, prostitutes, hired thugs, greedy money collectors. And those folks were listening to Jesus teach, knowing that, that many people in town did not like them or hated them, despised them, rejected them, or at the very least would abuse them in such a way that devalued their humanity. So they're listening to Jesus, and Jesus says something while he's teaching. He says that people like that could be saved and rescued, and that they could one day sit as loved and honored guests at the banquet table of God. That, that's what Jesus had just got through saying. 
And everyone in this crowd, that would have been shocking to them. Shocking. They would have never heard anything like that before. And some of the folks in that crowd were super religious people known as Pharisees and scribes. They would have been shocked. They would have been appalled. They would have been very angry that Jesus would say things like this. They would have been grumbling, as the Scripture says. They were, they were grumbling. They were, they were growling. Grumbling like this. <laughs> Who's this guy think he is? He has no right to say things like that. Is, has he not read our Constitution and bylaws? People like that, they're not welcome to the table. They first have to be good and moral like us before they can come to the table. And so they're grumbling. They're, they're growling about these sinners, especially that Jesus would affirm them and, and offer an invitation to them. So Jesus hears their grumbling, he hears their growling, and he responds with a parable. And a parable is kind of like a story. And the, the way we've defined this before is a, a parable by, by word, it means to set beside. So a parable is a, a real-life situation set beside a real-life truth so that real-life people can see how to do life for real. And so Jesus tells this parable, and how does his parable go? Well, listen to the first part, verse 4. What man among you? This is good. He's, he's starting hypothetically. Hey, what, what man among you? Which, which one of you in this crowd? He's starting with a question that, that everybody in the crowd would make a connection with. Didn't matter how old they were, didn't matter where they came from or how much money they made, didn't matter what the color of their skin was, didn't matter if they were or male or female, they would have been able to make a connection with this somewhat hypothetical question. And so Jesus hypothetically is asking a question that doesn't have a hypothetical purpose. Listen to the rest of verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost? Now, any, any sheep farmers in the room by chance that I just don't know about? All right, just making sure. Didn't want to be offensive. I'm assuming none of us are sheep farmers, so we might not be able to make a whole lot of connections with a parable about sheep farming. So let me see if I can help us engage a little more. Suppose you wanted to start your own sheep farm. A basic sheep would be anywhere from $40 to $75. If you got a purebred sheep, it'd be anywhere from $250 to $400. And I found out after a little bit of research that you can expect to make about $100 profit a year per sheep. Now, that didn't sound like a whole lot of money, but if you have 100 sheep, then you're going to make $10,000 in profit during the year, so that's not too shabby. So you are Farmer Ted or Farmer Sue, and, and now you've got some sheep, and one of your sheep runs off. They're lost. They're wandering. That is now seventy-five dollars to $400 worth of your money heading toward the grass in the middle of the median on the interstate. What you going to do? You're just going to sit on the porch and sip some lemonade and say, ah, it's just one sheep, no big deal. No, you're not. You're, you're going to go look for it. So, yes, the, the sheep farming culture was different back in Jesus' day, and, and the society was different, and the finances were different. But the principle is still the same. If you have something valuable and it's lost, you're going to go look for it. Well, let's think of this a, a different way. What if you didn't go out on, on your own? You had a sheep farm co-op. You have four or five families, and y'all go together, and, and y'all buy the sheep, and, and you're going to be sheep farmers together. 
That means when you're on watch and a sheep is lost, it's not just you and your family that's affected anymore. There are other people involved. In ancient times, sometimes a flock of sheep, they, they were owned by the, the whole village. The whole village owned these sheep. And so, therefore, there was more accountability for that shepherd if there was a wandering lost sheep. So just one sheep has value financially and practically. There's value to one sheep. But don't 99 sheep have value too? <laughs> I mean, if there's, if there's value in one, doesn't it seem like that 99 would have more value? So then this parable kind of not make a whole lot of sense that you would leave 99 valuable sheep and, and just run after the, the one that was lost? Well, this is where I would encourage us to remember this is a parable. This is a, a real-life situation set beside a real-life truth so that real-life people can see how to do life for real, okay? It's, it's a parable. Jesus is, is not giving a doctrinal statement. He's, he's not giving a constitution and bylaws. He's not giving a, a theological dissertation. It's, it's a parable. It's a story that anybody in that crowd, no matter how old they were, they, they could understand the story. They could make a connection with the story. And Jesus was moving this parable in a direction of spiritual truth. So what about the 99? I don't know. I mean, maybe he did, you know, just leave them. And maybe he trusted in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. I, I can trust God with my sheep and I got to go run after this other one. Or, you know, maybe he went to tractor supply and they had some kind of, you know, portable stable and he carried it around in the backpack and he used it, you know. Maybe there was a friend of his that came and watched the 99. Maybe he had some kind of Jedi force field that he put over the sheep, you know, before he left and then he went to look for whatever it is that he'd lost. We don't know. But here's the deal, that the 99 are not the thrust of the parable. They're not the main part of what Jesus is saying and we'll see that in just a moment. And so I would just encourage you as a, as a, a word of encouragement that, that when you hear preachers and teachers or you read them and, and they're chasing hard after every little word and every little part of a parable trying to make it some over-caffeinated apologetic explanation or, or trying to, to make it one of these fantastic, oh, I finally discovered this groundbreaking Christian truth for your life right now. Just, just be wise and pray for discernment. Because here's the thing, Jesus never explained his parables like that. Never did. So Jesus kind of asked a hypothetical question. Hey, what if you had something of value and you lost it? What would you do? And every Tom, Dick, and Sally in that crowd thought the exact same thing that any of us would. I'd go look for it. So how long does the shepherd go look for it? I love these last four words in verse 4, he looks until he finds it. That's good. He looks until he finds it. How quick are we to give up searching for something? Let's see if we can make some connection here. I can't find the remote. Anybody seen the remote? It's in the cabinet. No, I've looked there five times. It's not in the cabinet. Did you look on the cabinet or in the cabinet? Because you actually would have to open the doors in order to look in the cabinet. I found it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Or 
hey, where's the new peanut butter that I just bought at the store? It's in the pantry. No, I've looked in the pantry five times. It's not in the pantry. Have you looked behind the peanut butter jar that's not empty yet? You'll have to actually move it out of the way to see the new jar, you know, that you bought. I found it. I got it. I got it. Too close to home that I crossed some lines there? Yeah. We're quick, aren't we, to, to give up when we're searching for something. We, we kind of easily will just stop. But, but not this shepherd. Man, he's, he's seeking. He is going after this sheep until he finds it. He's not letting anything deter him. And what does he do after he finds his sheep? Listen to verse 5. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. That's the punch of this parable. It's, it's joy. This fantastic, authentic, powerfully cool joy. And again, unless you're a sheep farmer, you, you may have a, a struggle making this connection, right? I mean, this feels like Christmas morning present time, and we're talking about a, a lost sheep. We, we can't really make a connection, but we can, right? You know, go back to the, the example we said earlier. I mean, imagine you've got $400 cash, and you thought you put it in your sock drawer, and, and it's not there, and you can't find it. And so you start looking, and, and days later, you find it in the, in the bottom of your, your Eno bag, and you're like, oh, I forgot I put it in there. And, and all of a sudden, there's this sense of joy. I, I found this money. So this shepherd, he, he had full joy. He was so excited that he finally found his sheep that was valuable to him. And the sheep wasn't just financially valuable to him. No, he spent most of his time with these sheep. So they're like family. This is like if you lost your best friend and you finally found them. And so he rejoices. He has great joy when he finally founds, finds his sheep. And, and what does he do next? Listen to verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Remember the village example? The village might own all of the sheep together. And so if a, a sheep was lost, it, it was a big deal to them. It wasn't just a, a financial, valuable thing to them. This, the sheep was, was part of their village. The kids named the sheep Leonard. And, man, they started crying when mom and dad came home and said, Leonard's lost. You know, shepherd's out looking for him, but, but Leonard's lost. And why did they cry? Because they knew. They were kids, but they knew. They knew there were lions and there were bears and there was predators. They, they would go after Leonard, and they would snuff the life out of him. And so they were sad. Maybe you've lost a, a pet. Maybe your dog or your cat. Or, as I realized walking through downtown Columbia a few Saturdays ago, your pet ferret uh, might, might run away, you know. And, and you, can't, you can't find it. And then a day or two, three days later, they come back. Are you like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I didn't know where you were. No, you're excited. There's joy. So the shepherd comes walking into town. He's got, he's got Leonard on his shoulders. He's coming into town, and, and, and the news starts spreading quickly, and, and people start running out. And the kids are going up and saying, Leonard, you're okay. We're so excited. I mean, the whole village, there would be joy. There would be excitement because something of value, something that they love has been found. Jesus is responding to grumblers. 
He's responding to some super religious folks that were grumbling that he would have the audacity to invite unclean, immoral people into the kingdom of God. They were grumbling because that made them mad. And Jesus responded to their grumbling with a parable about a shepherd and a lost sheep. And the shepherd goes looking for the sheep until he finds it. And then he rejoices. And then he takes that weak, tired, frail, frightened sheep. And he carries that sheep, puts that sheep on his shoulders. And he goes back and he says, man, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. So what's the point of this parable? What's the real life eternal truth set beside this situation? Jesus tells us in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is where everybody in the crowd went, whoa, did not see that coming. I just thought this was a, a nice story about a lost sheep. The, the greedy, unclean, immoral, non-church-going people in the crowd, they were thinking to themselves, did he really just say that? And the, the pushy, spiritual, church-going folks, they were thinking to themselves, did he just say that? And why? What did Jesus say? Well, in, in explaining his parable, Jesus says, you know what? You guys are grumbling that sinners might be saved. You're grumbling about that. You're growling that unclean, immoral people might be saved. He said, but I'll tell you this. If one of these prostitutes and one of these greedy money collectors, if they get saved, all of heaven shouts with joy. They didn't see it that way, though. The Pharisees reportedly had a saying that went like this. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Whoa. I'm read it again. There's joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. And Jesus says, you guys have all of this completely wrong. Y'all are looking at all of this with the wrong eyes. Because there is joy Great joy when someone who is rebelling against God repents and comes into God's family. There's joy, ecstatic joy. There were people in this crowd that were hated and despised and rejected by almost everybody in town. There were people in this crowd that were abused in such a way that their humanity was devalued. And Jesus says to them that they can be saved, that they can be rescued, that they can be a part of God's church. You know, that's not just a parable, and that's not just a hypothetical question. The Apostle Paul said this to the Romans, Romans 10, verse 8, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Because of the power of God's Word and because of the power of the Holy Spirit of God, right now you are near the gospel. Right now as you hear my voice, you are near the gospel. And if you have always rejected the good news, if you have always rejected the gospel, then we would plead with you to repent and come to Jesus. To come and be dearly prized and dearly loved. To come and be invited into the family of God. And know this, that if you have truly repented, all of heaven sings and shouts and dances all about over you being found and brought into God's family. Dave Brandon tells a story about Donald. Donald was an orphan in Jamaica. He was a teenager and also had cerebral palsy. Dave and his church had a a group down at the orphanage in Jamaica where Donald lived, and they were working there on a mission trip. Donald was in the process of being adopted. I mean, could you just imagine that for a second? You're a teenager with cerebral palsy, and you're in an orphanage. I don't know the statistics, but I'm thinking pretty exciting that a family comes and says, yeah, we, we want you. Brandon describes the scene when the parents came. They were there. We were at the base when Donald and his new parents arrived just after they had picked him up at the orphanage. As the brand new mom embraced her son, our students gathered around her and sang praise songs. Tears flowed, tears of joy, and Donald was beaming. Later, one of the students said to me, this reminds me of what it must be like in heaven when someone is saved. The angels rejoice because someone has been adopted into God's family. So good. Listen, if if you feel rejected, if you feel despised, if there is something that has happened in your life that you feel your humanity is devalued, then we want you to know that true repentance brings true joy and all of heaven will rejoice over your repentance. All of heaven will see you as now dearly prized and dearly loved, and you will feel dearly prized and dearly loved because the one true God of the universe sent His only Son to die for the rights to adopt you. The wayward sinner, the lost sheep that's not even trying to listen for God. And even when you hear His voice, you just keep wandering. God sent His Son to die for you. So won't you respond to His call to your life? Let's see if we can set this into another real-life moment. Six years ago, Mesa Ridge High School in Colorado Springs, Colorado, had their graduation ceremony. Principal Joe Garrett presided over the ceremony. Superintendent Joe Royer and members of the Board of Education were all there with their graduate robes. The high school vocal instructor, Scott Christensen, played the piano, played Pomp and Circumstance. Rico Collins, a junior lineman on the football team, sang the national anthem. There were six members of the 
Mesa school staff that gave speeches at the ceremony. Rachel Jackson, the class salutatorian, gave a speech. Alyssa Magalong, the senior class president, gave a speech. And the room was full of family and friends and classmates and staff. What made this graduation interesting, though, was this graduation had already happened. See, the actual graduation for Mesa Ridge High School had happened days before. So why in the world were they having a whole nother graduation? I mean, pomp and circumstance had already been played. National anthem had already been sung. The speeches had already been given. Why were they having another graduation? Well, they had another graduation because one of their graduates was not able to make it, Kim Haskins. Kim and her family were on the way to to lunch before graduation practice, and they were in an accident when a car ran a red light. Kim and her mom were taken to the hospital. Her uncle had some moderate injuries, but Kim's dad, Stephen, died at the scene. And so what the school was doing was they were having another graduation just for Kim. This is what Principal Garrett said that day at the ceremony. We talk a lot in education about no child left behind. In the military, they talk about no soldier left behind. Today, this is about no graduate left behind. With joy and with purpose, these folks put on a graduation so that Kim would know when she graduated that she was loved. And friend, I want you to know that the joy and the purpose of Almighty God His love is greater than any love that we could ever show to a graduate. Any love that we could ever show to any other person. Because His love and His joy and His purpose sent His Son to die for you. And His love and His joy and His purpose last long after high school is over. Long after college is over. Long after life is over. What kind of love is this? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were good Baptists, not when we were good moral Americans. But when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, Christ died for us. The criminals and the prostitutes and the drug dealers, drug dealers and the and the hired thugs and the greedy money collectors and Dow. Dead in sin, that's when Christ died for us. Friend, that's that's love. That's love. Bruce Hurt, as a retired doctor, he says in his testimony that he heard the gospel and rejected it for 39 years, pretty firmly. But this is what he says. If salvation had been left up to us, we would still be in our sins. But thank God he lovingly took the initiative. He launched the search. He sent Christ to die for our sins while we were wandering from the fold. 
Listen, because of the power and the sovereignty and the authority and the love and the grace and the mercy of God, not one of his children will ever be left behind. It's not possible. So here's a question for your heart today. Has God launched a search for you? Are you hearing him call you? Are you hearing him calling you today? Has he been calling you for years, but you just keep wandering? Then we just want to plead with you to hear the call of the gospel and to stop wandering and to repent, to receive this salvation, to receive this love, to not be left behind, to have the good shepherd lift you up, put you on his shoulders. And when he does, please know this, that all of heaven sings with joy.